What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cad Brooks. I have been an admirer of today's guests since I was in my early 20s and just beginning my political education and work as an organizer. Her story, her life's work, her sacrifice moved me, inspired me, fired me up. I too wanted to serve the people. She was one of the first Shiro's I met when I first moved to Oakland, bursting into tears and babbling thank yous like an idiot. I still babble sometimes when I see her in public. I continue to admire and respect her, watching her still give so much to the people, moving with grace and principle and dignity. I'm talking about Miss Erica Huggins, who joins us today to discuss her new book, Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party, that she co-authored with social justice documentarian Stephen Shanks. From her website, ericahuggins.com, her bio reads, I am a human rights activist, poet, educator, Black Panther Party leader, and former political prisoner. For the past 36 years, I've lectured throughout the United States and internationally. My life's experiences have enabled me to speak personally and honestly on issues relating to the physical and emotional well-being of women, children, and youth, whole being education, the incarceration of men and women of color, and the role of the spiritual practice in sustaining activism and promoting social change. As a result of my 14 tenure as a leading member of the Black Panther Party, I bring a unique perspective to the challenges and successes of the Black Panther Party and its significance today. Ms. Huggins, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me on to Law and Disorder. It's a wonderful name for a show. <laughs> thank you. It's a smile. And thank you for your introduction. And thank you for all of the work you do to uplift humanity. Thank you. Ms. Huggins, first, the book is absolutely beautiful. Uh, The cover with all of the women's names and the the first few pages of just the photos. um, No words, just photos. It brought tears to my eyes. And we're going to, of course, get into the book and the contributions of the women um, in the party. But first, I want to start with a little bit about you. Where did you grow up and what was your family life like? I grew up in Washington, D.C., in Southeast. So that would be like for for those who live in the East Bay, like East or West Oakland or a combo of both. And so in Southeast, I was non-verbally educated to how the structural racism, I didn't have those words for it then, structural racism works. And and I was a teenager when I first decided in my heart that I wanted to serve humanity. I was 15. And was there a particular moment when you were 15? Yeah. What was that moment? Yes. I attended against my parents' wishes, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And I was so moved by what I saw, by the silence that I heard, by the kindness of people with one another on those capital grounds, that as I stood there, this 15-year-old black girl by herself in a crowd of what seemed to be millions, I felt this promise to myself, like a vow arise from from deep within me. I will serve people for the rest of my life. And so that has been my intention. And that on that day, I learned so much, not only about uh, racial thinking, saying, and doing, but also gender thinking, saying, and doing. Because the women, only one woman spoke. The other women were uninvited to speak. Mm. And that sat with you. Yes, I didn't have language for much of anything at 15, but I knew what I was seeing. And as a black person and as a woman, 
um, that day impacted me in a big and beautiful and deep way. So that was 1963. The Black Panther Party wouldn't be formed for another three years. What were those three years in between 1963 and 1966 like? So once I graduated high school, I think I was a junior in high school when I attended the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I love the whole name without shortening it for jobs and freedom. I um, graduated and I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be a school teacher. I knew I wanted to do something about the education of people of color because of the one I was not receiving. And the whole being education is what I'm talking about. And so I went to first Cheney State Teachers College, and then I transferred to Lincoln University. And I was one of the first 15 women to attend. It, it still is one of the three historical black universities open during American chattel slavery, but it had been only for men until I attended in the 1966-67 school year. And it was there that I read about the Black Panther Party, and it was there that I met John Huggins, my friend who eventually became more than a friend and my husband and the father of our daughter. And we made a decision together to leave school. I was in my junior year and drive across the country and free Huey Newton. You segued exactly where I was going to go next. I was going to ask you about um, where you met John and, um, can you talk about, so you, you drove across country to, to free Huey Newton. What was the first encounter you all had with the party? Ramparts Magazine, a, a, a very beautiful underground, when I say beautiful, it, was, it wasn't just a handout newspaper. It was a full magazine with feature articles. And there was a feature article on the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense written by Eldridge Cleaver. And I was so stunned by many things about the article and the pictures that went with it. The most stunning thing was the statement that the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is for all poor and oppressed people. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that that's what I was looking for. But when I read it, I knew that's what I felt was necessary because we don't live just in the United States. We don't live just in Africa. We live all over the globe and have been transported all over the globe and we've migrated as well. So it was important to me that because the Vietnam War had begun, because there were all kinds of fledgling movements for people of color, that I felt I needed to be about all poor and oppressed people. What were your early engagements uh, with the party like when, once, once you got to California? Well, the way we had gas money, Kat, was that <laughs> our friend Eddie wanted to go to um, Hollywood and be found as a blues singer. And we were up for that. Plus, he's the one who had more gas money than we did. And we were in John's little hoopty valiant. And, um, and we drove quickly across the country. And I want to say that one of my impressions of driving across the country, I'd driven up and down the East Coast before, but across the country was to see the, the heinous treatment of brown people at gas stations and corner stores and so on as we drove. I, I'd never witnessed that with my own eyes and heart. And 
it was an education to drive across the United States. If a person has any opportunity to do that still, I would suggest it strongly. Travel is always a great education. It keeps us from being in cultural silos. So anyway, I we, we got to Los Angeles, dropped Eddie off, and we were out of gas money, literally. So though we wanted to go to Oakland, we decided to stop in Los Angeles and find a Black Panther Party chapter there. We didn't know whether there was one or not. What we knew that the Black Panther Party was a national organization, which also had intention to be international, which it did become. And we did find a party chapter office in South Central Los Angeles. And we walked in and said we wanted to join. And we were asked, well, can you cook a meal? Yes. Can you sell the party's newspaper? Yes. Can you take care of the office? Yes. Can you go to political education classes? Yes. Well, y'all are Black Panther Party members. And that was the beginning. That was November of 1967. So then you've got two years of work and um, being pregnant, getting pregnant with your daughter. And then, um, Erica, can you walk us through what happened just three weeks after giving birth to your daughter on January 17th, 1969? Yes, I can. And I want to say that it wasn't two years. It was less than two years, Kat. Mm. And that's important for what I'm about to say. So UCLA and most of the large universities and some of the small ones were working on their um, ignorance about how to take care of students on university campuses, black and brown students, indigenous students, as we say today, BIPOC students. And so uh, there was um, community money university money to have programs that were more um, uh, focused on supporting students of color to navigate the very white structures and systems and classrooms of the big universities. And so the program at UCLA was called the High Potential Program, and they paid students a stipend to attend. Well, you must understand that party members didn't take any kind of paycheck check. We were totally volunteer, absolutely volunteer. And we worked 20-hour days. And we were median age 19 years old. And 66% of the membership of the party was women. So John Huggins and my dear friend, Al Prentice Bunchy Carter, who had just been released from prison, decided to become UCLA students and work with the young people on campus. When I say that, they didn't come to the campus as students to collect the stipend, though it helped. They came to uplift the understanding of the students, the the black and brown students on the campus at that time. So there was discussion about um, finding a new coordinator for the high potential program. And there were organizations on campus that wanted all kinds of possible new directors. And one of those organizations was called Us Organization. Now, mainstream media, because I'm going to move a bit forward quickly and come back and fill in the necessaries. Okay. One, one of the things to understand here is that though we did not know about count, the FBI's counterintelligence program at this time, we did know that there was more than a police effort to kill us, to misrepresent us, 
in writing, in speaking, in the news, in all kinds of media. But there was, there was an attempt. We were also stalked every day. It was part of our lives. We were followed everywhere. Our phones were bugged. So I'm setting this up so that you can understand that what I'm about to say is though the mainstream media portrayed the US organization and the Black Panther Party as being at odds with one another, though we had different ideologies, it was the counterintelligence program that inserted its big foot in the door to create dissension. And Bunchy and John knew that. I can't speak for what the US organization knew, but I do know that they were aware that there was something wrong with letters received from supposedly the Black Panther Party to the US organization or from the US organization to the Black Panther Party that neither organization wrote. So this was the beginning of our understanding of the government's intentional, or its intention to, as J. Edgar Hoover said, wipe us out by any means necessary. And as John Mitchell, then Attorney General of the United States, said, um, we will end the Black Panther Party by January of 1969. And the COINTELPRO continued to exist, but this is how we became aware of it. And on that day at UCLA, during, during daylight, at Campbell Hall, which is now a site that honors and memorializes both John and Bunchy. That would be Al Prentice Bunchy Carter and John Jerome Huggins Jr. Then um, that day, the room where they were killed was a cafeteria. Now that building is Campbell Hall is a site for all kinds of student of color support systems. That was how it began, and it still is. So on that day, when, when they were killed, they were both shot and immediately um, died. I became a widow and a single mom in one breath. And so did the widow of Al Prentice Bunchy Carter and the mother of his children. I insert that because quite often when we look at something through the male gaze, we don't remember the impact on women, on children, on family in a multi-generational way. It's actually a good opening to where I wanted to go next because I remember reading um, that story for the first time you know, in my early 20s. And my first thought then, which is my question to you now, the 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 grief, I can't imagine the 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 grief, losing both your husband and your dear friend, the weight of realizing it's now just you in this very young life. What was the support of the other women in the party for you is part one of the question. And then part two, Erica, is you could have, right? Someone could, in the face of those circumstances, decide, you know, that, that no, I'm, I'm done. This is it. Or allow their grief to swallow them without anybody looking, you know, it w that would make sense to, to, to a lot of folks. You continued on. Yes, I did. And I did so for, I don't think I was thinking about myself. I was, I was thinking about both John and Bunchy and how they kept moving forward. And 
to honor their lives, not their deaths, their lives, I wanted to continue with the work that I was doing. And of course, the grieving process, as they say, may take at least four seasons. For me, it was longer because as the story unfolds, other things happened. I also did continue to move forward for the sake of my daughter and her peers. She wouldn't, she wasn't old enough to talk with me about any of this. She was just a new baby. But I remember traveling across the country on a train and I love trains to this day because I was able to be with my own grief and my little daughter as I traveled to New Haven, Connecticut to be with John's family. I couldn't imagine, Kat, how John's mother felt losing her only son and her, his sisters losing their own only little brother. Um, by the way, John was 23 at the time of his death, and now Princess Bunchy Carter was 26. That is very young. And I was 21-ish. And so once I got there, I was asked to start a chapter of the Black Panther Party in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where John's family lived. We think of it as Yale, but I think people who haven't traveled to the East Coast or to New England forget that there are black communities, brown communities, indigenous communities everywhere. And so I happily said yes. It felt like I was continuing a legacy However, within three to four months, um, something horrible happened. A young black man was killed. And Bobby Seale and I were arrested for conspiring to murder him. He was murdered, but Bobby had nothing to do with it. And I had nothing to do with it. The murder. This was, um, this compounded the grief. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Also, when Bobby and I and 12 others were arrested, um, my daughter was taken from me. And thank goodness for my daughter's mother, John, grandmother, John's mother, who brought me, brought my daughter to be with me every Saturday for the one hour each woman was allowed to visit with her child. And Kat, you're a mother, so I know that that hits you as a violent thing to do yeah. to women. But that's the intention of prisons. They're not there to support, uplift, transform, educate persons who are held behind those walls. It's absolutely punitive. And we don't have time to go into that today, but one of the things that I did learn being at Niantic Women's Prison for two years and two days and some hours is that prison, there is no reason for them to exist. You, you walked through your story in the exact order that I had the questions laid out and exactly where I landed was uh, this reality that so many of the women incarcerated in this country are mothers um, and ripped away from their children. My father went to prison. It's also the, right, the children having their parent ripped away from them. Um, so tra trauma in, in both of those places. You also spent... Um, in those two years and two days and some hours, you you spent time in solitary confinement, which is torture. We know that to be true. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is th that that's where you began to develop your meditation practice. Yes. 
And, you know, I don't mind being with myself today because of that practice. I wouldn't wish prison on anyone. You do not need to go through what I went through to be with yourself. But I was never a person who was frightened of being alone. And that helped me uh, to be in, in the glorified solitary that it was before there were five of us, five women arrested and put, placed in that women's prison. The men arrested were placed in the men's prison. Um, but we were all together in one wing at first until all of those women were released and charges against them dropped. One of the things to know about the counterintelligence program is, and its attendant entities is that their belief was that if we cut the heads, the body will die. And so by arresting myself, who they assumed I was a leader, I never called myself a leader. I just never did. But I think that sometimes that gets pinned on us. Bobby Seale was a co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Of course they wanted to blame him and, um, and dismember the party, but also put a shiv in the love that people had for us because of our community survival programs. So I was well aware of all of this. I was grieving John's death and Bunchy's death and having my daughter taken from me. And I just knew that I was not going to remain healthy if I just sat there. Mm. And somehow I came to this idea that if I'm going to sit, I may as well sit with something uplifting on my mind. Whenever I thought of my baby daughter, that was uplifting. When I remembered conversations with John, particularly one conversation with him where I went to him feeling like I wasn't doing enough. I still feel that way, Kat. I'm sure many of us do. But we're not meant to do it alone or just with a few of us. I Every day I say some kind of wish out louder in writing, that all of us would join collectively to say yes to humanity instead of no. However, I was feeling I wasn't doing enough, and I went to John and I said, I just feel like I have this tiny little cup of water to, to douse the fire of hatred or something like that. And John said to me, and it's actually written on a wall in the pavilion at Campbell Hall on the UCLA campus now. His words are there. He said to me, first we must make revolution within ourselves, and then we can make revolution in the world or in society. And I stopped having a pity party about what I was doing or what I was, and I just kept going. And so that was a kind of memory of John, who was very uh, naturally attuned to people, all people. Most party members were. That's, I'm, I keep repeating that because there's this myth that we were just fierce black, young black people um, for only black people. But we live in a world of all kinds of people. And we are Black, so we have some understanding of what it means to live in this world where we were ancestrally owned by other humans. So anyway, right, I thought I should sit with something uplifting on my mind and I asked a lawyer, one of our lawyers, Charlie Gary, street fighter in the courtroom, and I asked him to get me a book 
on meditation and yoga, and he did. And after I stretched my body, which I needed to do every day because I couldn't always have a walk because I was isolated from all other women, and there had to be special, quote, guards to walk with me. So I stretched my body, and the book said, and after you stretch your body, sit still a while and breathe. Well, I knew how to sit still, and I knew how to breathe. The rest of it, I didn't know how to do it. But the party had already told me, you don't have to know how to do everything before you do it. Our community survival programs are an example of that. We didn't know how to feed children every day, breakfast, all over the country, but we figured it out. When people said to us, we need free health clinics, we didn't know how to open a health clinic, but we listened to the people and had faith that we could learn how to do it by calling on community members who already knew about health care. It was like that with all the 60 survival programs. But back to Niantic Prison for Women. Once I began that practice, my, my inner life strengthened. The grief began to slowly subside. And more important than anything else, I was able to, gr- to greet my daughter and my mother-in-law every Saturday for that one hour without crying and without sort of dropping my grief, despair, and sadness on them. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Erica Huggins. She's got a new book out, Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party, co-authored with social justice documentarian Stephen Shames. I, I do want to trans, uh, you know, move into talking about the survival programs, um, Erica, and specifically the role that women played in both their development and their implementation. Um, you've, you've mentioned the breakfast program, which I think you know a lot of folks know about, um, and the healthcare clinics, which I think a lot of folks know about, but I think it's really important what you said in your last statement, 60 survival programs. That's right. All created in communities across the country and other parts of the world other parts of the world where people were replicating what the party was doing. This is why the United States government was a government was frightened of us. You know, racism, sexism, misogyny, all, all those things are fear-based, not really hatred. It expresses this hatred but it's based in fear. And so anyway, we um, kept listening to people. When people said to us, we need a school for our children because our children are not being educated in the public schools. And we knew there were some wonderful educators in public schools, principals, teachers, staff. We knew that. But that isn't what people were saying to us. The curriculum itself was racialized. Very few books had anything about the history of slavery. And look where we are now in 2023. Mm -hmm. So we decided we would open a school or schools. The most famous one of them was the Oakland Community School. And I don't have really a lot of time to do it justice today, but it was a a tuition-free, child-centered, community-based, parent-friendly school for kindergarten through sixth grade. And it was located, when I say community-based, it was located in East Oakland. So we did our best to make that school be full of the things that we wanted when we were children, that we didn't have when we were children. Three meals a day, three 
home-cooked meals a day for each of the children. So it was a model. All of our 60 programs were models that could be replicated anywhere in the world. And it was because we listened. We didn't go and tell people, here's what you need, and here's what you need to do to get there. No, that's that's not a way that honors our various cultures. Conversation is the way that honors our various cultures. So we listened, and we asked questions, and we listened some more, and then we went to find people who could help us bring these wishes into reality. The Seniors Against a Fearful Environment program, the SAFE program, is another program like that. And I think about it because it existed in Oakland and was beginning to spread. But I think about it because it kept changing as the needs of the seniors changed or as we understood those needs to be. Women for the most part, coordinated uh, and sustained the community survival programs. So did men. And I want to be clear that women were the ones holding the brunt of that work. I want to honor Bobby Seale and Huey Newton for thinking of the concept of survival pending revolution. I want to honor them for the vision and the creativity and the practicality of the principles of the Black Panther Party. So, I have so many follow-up questions that I'm looking at the, 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 the clock. I, um, <laughs> um, I guess I want to ask what, what might what might be a, a little bit of a of a of a difficult question, um, but I, I think or and but I think it's it's important given that right this book is highlighting the the contributions of the women of the party who, who were the engine behind the survival programs. Was it a relegation to those roles? Was it a no? Right, and, and I think that's. Right. I think you're asking. I think you're asking somebody else's question, right? Yes, I'm asking exactly. I'm asking somebody else's question because I think it's important to be really clear um, mm-hmm. uh, about actually how things were moving no. in the party. Yeah, we were running stuff. That's right. And um, and men were there as well, and they were running things too, but it wasn't gender based. The leadership for much, the leading teams, the leads for many of the communities that survival programs were women. Um, because running isn't the way I want to say that exactly. We would get things done. We weren't just those who understood the vision, but we knew the beauty and the details of carrying it out. And as I said earlier, we knew that after a point, one of the women who is no longer alive was very young, much younger than me. She was like a little sister to me. And her, I wrote a tribute to her in the book. Her name is Arlene Clark. She called me one day and she said, Erica, we're just dropping the seniors off after we take them to the bank and the doctor's office and the supermarket. But when I was taking Ms. Johnson the other day and I got her groceries to her door and I was about to say goodbye, she said, honey, come on in and have something to eat. And I, I, I was raised by my mother who was from the South. You always said yes when somebody offered you food. Mm-hmm. It was rude to do the opposite even if you'd already eaten. And so Arlene said, okay, Miss Johnson. And she went in her house and realized that Miss Johnson lived alone. She needed more help than just transportation to the store. And she called me to say, Erica, can't we just visit the seniors? When I say that we improved upon it or we changed it because we listened, we were observant, 
That's what I mean. We were always thinking about what can we do in in addition that will uplift, that will support, that will bring a smile to the faces of. So, no, I wouldn't call it women's work at all. Um, I would call it human work Mm. that we were doing because the government refused to do it. And our kind of standing response when people talk to us about what was needed in community, we were like, well, the government's not taking care of it. We'll take care of it. We'll do it. That really resonates with me. And I think, you know, uh, uh, other folks um, that are, you know, doing doing the 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 work of organizing advocate advocacy right trying trying to lift the the weight of the oppression on our folks now the the idea of being of service and what i call often organizing 101 which is meeting the people where they're at as opposed to where your ideology says that they should be yeah we we were very very um um sometimes castigated for our community survival programs because the ideologues would say, well, you're just giving things away to people. How are they ever going to learn? And when I first heard that, I thought, this is a person who's never been into the communities they're referring to. How would Ms. Johnson have a conversation with Arlene about improving the quality of life for all seniors if she was worried about where her next meal was going to come from, her personal safety alone at home, her whatever her life story was. The same for parents. If, if, If a mother was worried about where money for shoes was going to come from, or worse, do I buy shoes or do I buy groceries? Now, if I buy groceries, my child won't be able to school, go to school with no shoes. Or maybe in New York City, no boots because it's wintertime. We said we will serve people body and soul. That was our motto. And once they have some of their needs met, they will join us in what we call today mutual aid. They will join us. That's why Open Community School was parent-friendly, because the parents wanted to come in and help at the school if they didn't have jobs. And some parents had two or three jobs. That's how we came to three meals a day, because the children's parents were not home. They were working a night job during dinner time. We were just really practical about all of it. And most of us had grown up in communities where this was not new to us. Even if it was new to some, we made sure we paid attention to the quality of life in our communities. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Erica Huggins, who's just released a new book, Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party, co-authored with uh, social justice documentarian Stephen Shames. Erica, why this book about the women of the party in this moment? Well, it was Stephen who brought this idea to me. Um, it was one I'd been thinking about by that time for almost 30 years. Now it is 30 years because the book was released in October of 2022. And I'm a co-author like Stephen. He came to me to say, I've done two other books with all of my photographs that I took in the 60s and 70s of party members. Um, Bobby Seale asked him to be a party photographer, by the way. And so the photographs are intimate. You know that the photos are being taken and people are receiving um, him um, out of trust. Or, oh yeah, there's that guy again. So there was no, there weren't posed photographs as such. There's a vulnerability in these photos. That's exactly right. And sensitivity. 
yeah. and a closeness. And so he said, I've done two books, but never have I focused on the women of the party. And it dawned on me, we're living in this time where women are being uplifted. Would you join me? Would you be co-author with me uh, on a book about women of the Black Panther Party? And my response was, yes, I will. It's about time. Not about time for him, but it was about time for all of us. And we made certain that this book was not a book of war stories. Yes. That the gaze was not a male gaze, that we're doing something instead of or in spite of men. That is not what this book is about. This book is an homage to women who are no longer alive and all of those who are alive, the hundreds and hundreds of women who joined the Black Panther Party that no one knows. So we wanted Steve and I, Steve with the photographs and me and the, the support person who is like a pillar of this book. I just want to mention her name, a young African-American scholar and researcher, Angela LeBlanc Ernest who canvassed until we got, it was almost 200 names, but we kept querying and emailing and texting until we got almost 50 women willing to have conversations with me about joining the Black Panther Party, their most memorable moments in the Black Panther Party their willingness to serve at a young age and continue to do so until there was no more physical party. And those women's stories, their experiences. I want to say to you, Kat, that when we first sent the book manuscript to booksellers, not book buyers, booksellers, the big booksellers, people would write back to our salesperson saying the women's experiences brought them to tears. And even though I worked on them, sometimes when I read them, I'm in tears. This is what people need to know. That, you know, it it wasn't that we were always behind a microphone. We might have been rebraiding somebody's hair. We might have been selling the party newspaper and then coming to work at the school. We might have been supporting the free busing to prisons program, another one of our community survival programs, and it continues to be necessary. Um, We did whatever was in front of us and in a big way, we didn't complain about serving community. And this was also at a time when feminism, when we were doing what we were doing at first, feminism was not something that we could identify with because it was very siloed in terms of race and class. Mm. But we were all the the beautiful definition of feminism as black women. We cared about all of humanity, not just some of it. So I, I, I'm trying to answer your question in a succinct way and it's hard. However, this book will touch. I know it's touched your heart. Yes. It touches people's heart and especially young activists who are feeling, oh, I just can't do one more meeting and I'm so, (laughs) is it okay for me to take care of my children? Is it, can I get a good night's sleep? Yes, and you must is our answer. You must take care of yourself. You should put yourself first so that you can continue to serve. The whole idea of who serves and how and for what time frame is very masculine. It doesn't take into account that you may have a child, you may have children, you may be pregnant, 
you may have other things going on in your life. And so a male life then and now is different. So it was time for the book. That's the simple answer. And time to thank all of these women for their absolutely beautiful contributions to our world. And that's how I'm going to close is by thanking you and all of the women of the party for your lives, your sacrifice, your work, and um, what you've left for us, what you offer to us to learn from. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I have been in conversation with Ms. Erica Huggins, who has a new book out, Comrade Sisters, The Women of the Black Panther Party, that she co-authored with social justice documentarian Stephen Shames. Erica, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending this hour with us today. Thank you, Kat. It was an honor to do so. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask of the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>